0: So if you are a first time guest here this morning, really glad that you're here. My name is Mike and I'm the lead pastor uh, here at MCC. And we have a gift uh, for you just for being here this morning. We would like to invite you to come back. Uh, you have come on a great day, by the way. Today as Adam just mentioned, we are concluding our I Am series. And uh, it's, listen, we wanted to start 2018 uh, talking about how we fill in this blank right here. Because, because we all fill this blank in. Sometimes we we do it verbally, out loud, consciously, and other times we do it subconsciously. We tell tell ourselves things about ourselves. And most of those things we tell ourselves are things we've heard from other people about us. And sometimes other people get it right about who we are, and other times they're not even close. And sometimes the things that they say about who we are uh, is hurtful. And so the very first week in this series we talked about the fact that the things that we believe most about ourselves are the things that we heard early in life from a credible source, a source we consider credible, and that we've heard often in our life. And some of those things just quite frankly are not true. And so we wanted to begin the year talking about how God actually fills that blank in. And so the first week we talked about this. God says that that I am chosen, that you are chosen. And uh, to be very clear, what that means is, he knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, everything you've ever done, every word you've ever spoken, and he chooses you. Uh, we, second week, uh, Adam spoke and he shared with, uh, that we are worthy. And to be clear, you didn't earn that. This isn't because you're good enough to be worthy because none of us are good enough to be worthy. We are worthy because God has declared that we are sons and daughters of his. And it's just that declaration that makes us worthy uh, people. Last week, I talked about the fact that, we're, uh, that we are a reflection in our marriages, that our marriage relationships are so important to God that the image that best describes what our relationship is supposed to look like is this relationship with God. So our, refle- our relationship with our spouses are supposed to be a reflection of our relationship uh, with God. Now, all of that is just to help us live out uh, what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1, where he says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. That's what we're shooting at. What does that look like in real life, in real time? So we've talked about what it looks like as individuals. We've talked about what it looks like uh, in real life in our home. Today, we want to talk about how we do that uh, here in the church. I don't know if you noticed the title or not we are. It's not I am, today it's we are, and we're going to take a look at uh, all of us, the church. What does God say about who we are together? So let's check this out, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes this, it was he, that is uh, Jesus, who gave gifts to people. He appointed some to be apostles, others to be prophets, others to be evangelists, others to be pastors, and, and some to be teachers. And he did this to prepare all of God's people for the work of Christian service in order to build up the body of Christ. And so we shall all come together to that, let's say this word together, we shall all come together to that oneness in our faith and in our knowledge of the son of God and we shall become mature people reaching to the very height of Christ's full stature then we shall no longer be children carried by the waves and blown about by every shifting wind of the teaching of deceitful people who lead others into error by the tricks that they event instead by speaking the truth in a spirit of love we must grow up in every way to Christ uh, who is his head under his control, all the different parts of the body fit together and the whole body is held together by every joint with which, which it is provided. So when each separate part works as it should, the whole body grows and builds itself up through love. Listen, uh, verse 13, let's look at that one more time. It says that we shall all come together, right, to that oneness. That's what we're shooting at. So on your notes, if you would, if you're filling that in, here's what God says about us. When he looks at his church, when he looks at all of us, he says, we are one. We are. And it, listen, it's easy. It, it, it's so easy to say that, that, that we are one. But the reality of unity, it must be incredibly difficult the reason I say that is because this concept of church unity is prevalent in Paul's letters to the churches. It's almost this underlying request. Paul wrote uh, half of the New Testament, 13 of the 27 books, they're letters to churches or to people. And when he writes to the churches, almost every, it's just like this underlying theme in his letters uh, of this unity within the church. So unity in mission and method is difficult to achieve. And quite frankly, once you have it, it's difficult to maintain. So why is it so important? <laughs> why is it worth working on? If it's so hard to get it and once you've got it, it's so hard to keep, why, what makes it worth it? There's some things that we're told in our verses. Number one, our oneness honors God. When we are one as the church, somehow, just plain and simple, unity, especially within the body of Jesus, honors God. According to verse 13, we shall all come together to the oneness in our faith and our knowledge. As a matter of fact, we reach, look at what, we reach to the full height, the very height of Christ's full stature. There's something Jesus-y, right, about unity. Giving up my preferences and my individual dreams to accomplish the dream of the kingdom because we're all different we all have different gifts. We may all do the exact same thing, but we do it in different ways. We know we, become, we are becoming like Jesus when we are willing to submit our differences to work together. Look at these verses. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with each other and don't be split into groups. I beg that you be completely joined together by having the same kind of thinking and the same purpose. So here's the question. I'm going to give you three this morning, all right? Here's the question to ask. Always ask, what's best for us? What's best for, not what's best for me, and notice I didn't say what's best for you instead of what's best for me, it's what's best for us as a group. Our Heavenly Father, just like any good parent, enjoys watching his children get along with each other. It is the essence, it is the core of how God intends for us to experience life together in the church. And when we do that, there's something about that that brings honor to him. When we're able to get along and all point in the same direction, it brings honor uh, to him. But it's more than just getting along with each other. Having the same purpose and goals does something else, which I think is interesting. Our oneness affects other people's ability to believe. And I'll make sure you get that. And if you, listen, write this number down on your notes, if you're taking notes. 19,000. Write down that number, 19,000. Every year, there are 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the United States. 19,000 major scarring conflicts in in the church in the United States. That's an average of 50 per day. Think about what impact that has on people who do not believe. That we're trying to help find Jesus. As a matter of fact, look at what Jesus said in John chapter 17. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Listen, unity in the church is important to Jesus because he knows that people who are trying to figure out if he's real or not, if he really makes a difference in our life or not, unity will either make it happen or break it. It'll make it or break it. it proves, our unity proves to the world that Jesus is legit. So I wonder if that could be part of the reason it's so difficult to achieve and then once it's achieved to maintain unity. Because if unity is so important to God and to his mission, is it possible that the enemy will do everything he can to hinder and destroy unity within the church? The idea begins what we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and in him, we're talking about Jesus, you two are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit, which sounds all very nice and very inspiring in this verse. But in context, it's talking about Jews and Gentiles being united to become the church of Jesus. So in this church uh, in Ephesus, Paul is writing about Jews and non-Jews. So Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and everybody else. Okay. So if you're uh, if you're if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're everyone else. So everyone here who's in everyone else, hand raise, please. If you're in everyone else, if not, you're a Jew. All right. Everyone else. All right. So these two groups, just quite frankly did not get along very well uh, in the first century. Historically, uh, when they, listen, they either lived in this awkward tolerance of each other or just outright, uh, I mean, they were at each other's throats, literally at each other's throats. So think about the people who are so unlike you that you, uh, and you would never really say this out loud, but quite frankly, you don't want them in your church. Now they can go to some other church, but you don't want them here because they're not like you and they make you uncomfortable and they kind of make you mad and uh, you, 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 you know, you'd key their car on your way out of church. Uh, something like that. As the New Testament got off the ground, the very first Christians were converted Jews, people from the nation of Israel who had come to the conclusion that some of us here have come to that Jesus is the son of God uh, and the promised savior. But it's in the book of Acts just as the church starts. So it isn't very old. And uh, Peter is sent by God. So the apostle Peter, one of the 12, is sent by God to the home of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius became the first Gentile uh, convert to Christianity. By the way, Peter struggled with that. God can't be telling me to do this because this is wrong. Peter was a Jew. This can't be right. But he did, and it opened the door, and Gentiles came flooding into the church. In fact, the apostle Paul became the first apostle. He was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He traveled all over the known world, preached the gospel, establishing churches, and then he would write letters to those churches like the one we're reading now. As a Jew himself, Paul understood the challenge of bringing Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians into one family. And in verse 14, uh, just a few verses before, uh, Paul says this. He speaks of this barrier and a dividing wall of hostility. Do you see that? The barrier, the dividing wall. Now, that, those words mean kind of the same thing they do to us today. Usually you're talking about a fence or some sort of a barrier that someone puts up, a railing. But the word that Paul used for dividing wall reflected to the barricade in the temple in Jerusalem. It separated the court of the Gentiles from the areas where the Jews could go. So Gentiles were always welcomed into the temple. And they could go this far, and then they could go no further. They could go into the lobby, but they couldn't come into this room. And there was a dividing point. At this dividing point, there was a sign. Literally, there was a sign in the temple that said, no foreigner may enter the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. No wonder Paul called this a wall of hostility, right? Come in here and we'll kill you. Welcome to church. Uh, So, I mean, you come here and you get a mug for coming. You go there and you get mugged. For coming. (laughs) That's pretty rough. (laughs) And what Paul is saying is that Jesus breaks through this barrier. That he's the one who, for Jews and Gentiles, it meant he brought these two groups of people who just absolutely couldn't get along into one family. How in the world do you unite? that kind of division. Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's the kind of house God wants to build for himself to live in. A house that is one in spirit and one in purpose. And churches like that that reflect God's kingdom and make the greatest impact on the world are made up of all kinds of people, all moving in the same direction, all dreaming the same dreams, all praying the same prayers, all working toward the same purpose. So I'm gonna stop just long enough to say this. For some of us here this morning, your next step in your walk with Jesus, your next step in your faith is to find out a little bit more about who we are because you've been coming and you've never really stopped long enough to find out who we are what we do why we do it that way what we're hoping to accomplish so here's what's going to happen next sunday morning at 9 30 there's a class that i teach it's called first step and and so we'll be meeting in the room just off our balcony uh, up there to the left Uh, it is a chance to hear about mcc and who we are and to ask any question that you want to And so I hope you will join me there. If you would, just go to our website and uh, uh, sign up for the class. I would love to have you. One of the things that you'll hear is that the reason we exist here at MCC, and this is something we want to make sure everybody knows, that we exist to help people begin and build their relationship with Jesus. That's our purpose. That's why we're, it's why we get together. It's why we leave this place. So that we can help people begin and build their relationship. So our goal is to help you begin and build your relationship with Jesus so that you can help someone else begin and build their relationship with Jesus so that they can help someone else begin and build their relationship so they can help someone else so that they can help someone else so that they can help. Do you get the picture of what I'm talking about? That's why we exist here. It's the kind of church that we want to be. So here's the question. Question number two Does my ability to get along make it easy for people to believe in God? Because it either does or it doesn't. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. There's, there's no Switzerland of this question. Does my ability to get along, make it easy for people to believe in God? That is a, that's the question, maybe for you, your next step in your relationship with Jesus is that question right there, all right? Verse 16, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, okay? So this is not some passive mental assent, by the way, to agree to the the same kind of thing. This is a roll up your sleeves and get to work kind of thing. Paul says every one of us has a different gift that we've been given by God. We all have one and we're supposed to use them for one cause because our oneness also brings synergy. And if you don't know what that word is, I'll explain it here in a moment. But there's a verse in the Old Testament that a friend pointed out to me, uh, and it's going to require a little bit of math, which I know for some of you it makes you a little giddy, uh, and that's great. Um, And for others of us, we're going, great, math, it's the weekend. Um, So Leviticus 26 offers a list of promises from God to the Israelites. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. Uh, So God is taking them in. They have to go to war. And so he makes these promises if they are obedient to his command. So when you you go into the land and you go to war, you need to understand, if you stay true to me, here's what will happen. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. Basically, if we were to paraphrase this, A few soldiers will kick the tail of a bunch of soldiers, okay? But I want you to notice the numbers. Those of you who are mathematicians, you're already looking. The numbers that God gave, five will chase 100. 100 will chase 10,000. Now, I'm not rain man. I do like Walmart. Um, Mathematically, look at this. If five will chase 100, so five times what? is 100. Five times? Okay, thank you, we have one math person in the room. Five times 20 is 100. Then 100 uh, would chase how many? 20 times 100? 2,000, we have three math people in the room. That is awesome, okay. So five times 20 is 100, 100 times 20 is 2,000. So it says five will chase 100, but 100 will chase how many? 10,000, listen, here's what, Listen. I know this is a figure of speech. This isn't God doing math and getting it wrong. That's not what we're talking about here. Just it's, it's, it's a concept that I wanna make sure you don't miss. It's called synergy. Basically, a team as a team grows larger, the amount of work that it can produce will increase exponentially. Five people working together can do more work than the sum total of the five people individually. A team of dogs can pull more weight for a longer period of time together than the sum total of what each dog could pull by itself all added up. Listen, division is one of the enemy's greatest weapons against the church. If he can't stop us, he at least slows us down immensely. Disunity is the dam that holds back the power of the bride of Christ Satan's strategy throughout the centuries has been to destroy unity inside the church through relationships or in our purpose. And here's the thing. He doesn't have to get us against each other. We don't have to be fighting against each other. We just have to be moving in different directions all at the same time. Not pulling all together in one direction, one mission, one purpose. Read the last six words of verse 16 as each, okay, let's read this together. <laughs> Synergy, you ready? As each part does its work, right? As each part does its work. Here's the question, am I, how am I investing in the work of God here? How am I investing in the work of God? May I tell you that spectator is not a spiritual gift. Okay, just I just wanna be clear. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. I'm not saying it's not helpful, I'm just saying it's not a spiritual gift. Peter wrote this, each of you has been blessed with one of God's many wonderful gifts to be used in the service of others. So use your gift well. How are you investing your gift in the work of God's kingdom? So I was reading this book that talked about another book, all right? And the other book was Into Thin Air, which tells the story of the most deadly day ever on uh, Mount Everest, which is the highest point um, on, on the face of the earth. Unfortunately, there is a deadlier day that occurred after the Nepal earthquake of 2015, but before the earthquake and the avalanche that ensued May 10th, 1996, stood out as the most disastrous day ever on that mountain, because nine people from four separate climbing teams lost their lives to this rogue storm that blew in without warning. Now, the survivors disagreed over what went wrong. They disagreed over who was to blame. Uh, they, they did know this, uh, there was a lot of ego on the mountain that day. Rivalry between those teams was very intense. There were times, because it takes two months, there were times during the two-month climb that jealousy and hard feelings and selfishness were evident. There was a team of Taiwanese uh, climbers who stubbornly refused to work with anybody else. Two teams were led by veteran climbers who were vying for success uh, in order to drum up more business. Amateur climbers paid $65,000 to be led uh, to the summit. The fact that an internationally recognized journalist and a wealthy New York uh, socialite were on two different teams just made for more competition and the desire to succeed. Now listen, no one knows if those nine lives could have been saved if everyone worked together. But what is certain is that the adversarial climate on the mountain added to this horrible tragedy. I tell you that because in contrast to that, five years later, almost to the day. So that happened on May 10th. On May 24th, 2001, Eric Weinmayer made it to the summit. Now you need to understand, and maybe you already do, nine out of 10 people who attempt to climb the 29,000-foot mountain don't make it to the top. And it's also true that since Edmund Hillary did it for the first time in 1953, 280 people have died trying to get to the top. And yet others have made it. Dozens of others have made it. But what made Mayer's journey such a big deal, (laughs) the Time magazine put him on the cover. They put him on the cover of their magazine. Why would they do that? It's because Eric is blind. He's totally blind. He was born with a degenerative eye disease, lost his vision as a teenager, but he never lost his will to persevere. As a matter of fact, his story is one of courage and determination. In many ways, despite his blindness, he became precisely who God created him to be And that's what enabled him to do precisely what God designed him to do. Now, you need to understand, he didn't climb Mount Everest by himself. He had a team of 19. They were veteran Himalayan climbers, and he had some of his most trusted friends on this team, and they worked together as a single unit. Again, two months of a trip, nearly overwhelming obstacles. And finally, this blind man stood on top of the world, He carried his weight as a member of the team, but the little bell on the backpack of the guy in front of him told him where he should step. The directions of the guy behind him, the climbers behind him, directions like death fall, two feet to your left, told him where not to step. And without those men, he could not have done it. It was the united effort of Eric's team that enabled them to reach the summit together, all 19 of them. It's the largest group to ever make it to the top of the mountain uh, together. And it's an amazing thing when you can do what you were designed to do and to do it with the people that you love. And I just want to say, when God's people act in God's name and in God's power, we are impossible to stop. Let me say it again. <laughs> we're impossible to stop. Jesus said, The gates of hell can't even stand against us. So for some of us, our next step is that first step class I was talking about. And if that's you, if you're thinking about a relationship with Jesus and how do I make that commitment or should I make that commitment or is this the place I want to be a part of, that class is for you. But for others of us, it has to do with this question that I asked just a little bit ago. Uh, what's, am I asking this question, what's best for us? Your next step in your faith is instead of asking what's best for me, I ask what's best for us. Or maybe your next step in your relationship with Jesus is about answering this question Does my ability to get along make it easy for people to believe in God? Because we either become this bridge for people or we become a stopgap for the church and we make it hard for people to believe in God just because of the way we get along with other people. Maybe that's your next step. Or maybe it's this one How am I investing in the work of God here? What am I doing to advance the kingdom? Look at what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi chapter 2 again. He said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Notice it doesn't say that your interests don't matter. It only says that you should not only look to your own interests. In other words, always ask this question, what's best for us? Not just what's best for me. I'm asking the question, does my ability to get along make it easier for people to believe in Jesus? how am I investing in the work of God here? Those kinds of questions are what he's talking about. And then he writes this, verse five. In your, relationship with, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Each week we remind ourselves of how Jesus lived this out, this idea of oneness that we're talking about. And ultimately, it cost him his life. To live out this oneness of the kingdom of God cost him his life because he traded his for ours So as we take communion today, we remember not only that Jesus paid a sin debt that we owed, but couldn't pay. Not only do we remember that, but we recommit ourselves to him and to the unity of his church here at MCC, and that we will be the ones who advance the cause of the kingdom in this generation in the name and in the power of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we are grateful for moments like this when we stop and we remember and we remember what Jesus did, even though it wasn't personally in his best interest, it was in our best interest. And so what was most important for the church and to the kingdom of God is what he did, putting aside his personal preferences, putting aside his personal desires, (laughs) He said, what's best for us? And he gave himself up for us. And so, God, we, we remember that and that he died for our sins, not his sins, our sins. And God, when we remember that, we are grateful to you. But our time is more than that we don't just remember what Jesus did. We remember who you call us to be, to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. And as the church, we do that by being one, by being united. And so God, as we take these emblems that remind us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross and the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for us, may we not only recommit ourselves, our lives to you, May we commit ourselves to the work of the church and what you do through us to draw the world to you. And we pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.